And I, I really loved Gil's talk last night. I liked them, both the big picture overview coming down to here. You know, just here. Because that's all there is anyways. And it is, in a certain sense, it's how reality is. All of it, all of, one, one of the interesting um, experiences that I have sometime, especially in the teaching role, and when people come in for interviews or to inquire into their experience, sometimes you can, it's almost like you can see behind them and you can see the whole history or all the conditioning or all the different relationships and people and family and then beyond actually, you can start to see the the lineages and the grandparents and the traditions and the cultures and the but it's all sitting right here. And they're not really two, not really separate. It's all here. And it's all, it, it can't be anywhere else. But it's not exactly gone. Even though the past is gone, it's all gone. But something, something has come forward that is not actually disconnected from where it's come from. It's an, it continues to express something new. At the same time, it's been fueled by all of human life, all of life. I don't, I don't know. But it all lands here. We land here. <clears throat> and and, uh, and it was a beautiful description of the path of, in some sense, gathering ourselves, letting go of the extraneous, of the extra, of the habitual, and then landing at home or here or now, and then uh, and then even even the usual way we know ourselves starting to uh, um, uh, become more transparent. And that really nice way Gil said, "Oh, even the self disappears at a certain point." And then this the peace or the freedom or the awareness that's here. And I was, so I was, I just had that whole feeling of the path and beautiful sense of the path. And then I was in the dining room, the, the yurt, what we, you could barely call a dining room for the teachers. Um, and I don't have any reaction to that at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, and there was this cartoon um, from the, New Yorker, and it, you know, shows a regular American couple kind of sitting there watching big screen TV. And it says, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, can Susie and Johnny achieve right mindfulness? And will Barb and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? <laughs> So some of you will be asked to leave tonight. <laughs> if after this talk you're still clinging to the self. Uh, we've come a long way, huh? I mean, uh, uh, it's good to laugh. It's good to laugh. One of the um, ways the followers of the Buddha are sometimes described um, is happy and peaceful and easily delighted and things like that. And then at the end of this long list one time I saw it said, and they, and they have a gazelle-like mind, a gazelle-like mind. And I, I thought, what a beautiful image. And I, and I was around gazelle this year in Africa and they're just like, a certain kind of lightness. I mean, they can move and they can jump and they're very light. And, um, and, but I didn't know what it meant, right? A gazelle-like mind. So I was looking in the commentaries and what it means is um, that they were lighthearted, that they were lighthearted. And it's a beautiful part of practice. 
um, because we take it very seriously. You know, it's what we love, it's what we care about. It's very important to each person here in, in your own way. And yet, one of the uh, uh, ways that it manifests, that the that understanding or the fruits of the practice manifest is as lightheartedness, as not holding things heavily or tightly. Even though things can be very hard or very difficult, or we still, we just see, we begin to see in the coming and going, in the changing nature of everything, that there can be a certain kind of lightness or unheldness. And Gil was pointing at that a lot last night, the non-clinging. Sharda had talked about it and the talk earlier about, you know, when we do practice, we really, we're just realizing something that's already here, something that is our birthright. She was quoting Ajahn Chah. She said, "The, the original mind is already peaceful and discovering our original mind, what Ajahn Chah would call original mind. John was talking about it as the unfabricated. And so I'd like to continue the uh, uh, exploration that Gil began, or really that we've begun since the beginning, and then Gil took forward last night. And I'd like to do it a little bit in the spirit of New Year's, in this sense. Um, uh, we'll have a little dharmat later that'll be really I speak more to this this false idea of New Year's, but um, but I I don't need to do that tonight. But in the spirit of it, I'd like us to be a little playful, or a little lighthearted, a little exploratory, because you know, let's face it, this is a pretty subdued New Year's Eve party. <laughs> this, this might be the most exciting part. Is, so, <laughs> so let's see if we can, you know, rock it out in a very mindful and way, even though we're staying home the whole time. <laughs> so I'll give you a, a short version. It's really a quote that I use and like a lot lately of the, the path, one simple way to talk about it kind of summing up in one way, in one sense, what Gil was saying, which is to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. You know, you could say let go or relax or or forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken, sometimes translated as become intimate, or close to, or at home with, all things. And uh, we want to keep, one of the things I hope we can do, we can play with is, what does it mean to get closer? or become intimate, or more at home with all things, with this experience. And especially as it gets quieter or simpler, um, what is it that keeps us from getting closer? What is it that keeps us from, from the immediacy, from the direct contact, or the direct knowing it's sometimes called? And again, I think I talked a little bit in the beginning about different kinds of mindfulness. We can be mindful from a distance, or we can start to become closer, that the mindfulness can begin to saturate the experience or know the experience by being in contact with the experience, not being separate from the experience, even though we might not be, let's put it this way, it's almost like... um, I don't know if this is a great way to say it, but I'm going to say it for now, that like we identify with the experience totally, at the same time we disidentify from the experience. Or we feel it, experience it, even, and again, the words will be a little clumsy here, become the experience, but also know that 
oh yeah, we're not even that experience. That experience is just happening. But the and and I'm using different words because different language will work better for different people. Some people I could say saturate, and that will really resonate. And some people I can say be with, and that'll resonate. And some of us, so the the idea of becoming will resonate, or some of us, this the intimacy will resonate. And you, we want to see what resonates for us, and then use that. And of course, it could be a word or an idea, or and these words are all pointing at something. They're all pointing at something. And, the, and we, wanna, we want to use the word, use the language to support this movement home, this movement closer, this movement here. And also be light with the word because what I've seen is, uh, like at least for myself, some words or some phrases will work for a while and then they don't, they don't quite work. And I've got to actually, like maybe home would work for me for a while, like oh, the next few days, you know, I could just feel the talk and, the, and how, how that um, supported this movement closer. And then it might fade, like the word won't work, and then to keep seeing, okay, what, how is it now to be that close? Or, or, and maybe an, what I'm suggesting is maybe another word will come or another phrase or another way to come closer will come forward and, and our own words will come. Our own, in the inner teacher, we could say, will begin to arise and then knowing, and we can use that. And then it'll change again, especially as the long, if you're on a longer retreat, it's, you, you'll go through phases where certain things will work and then they'll change. And, and in the lightness and the lightheartedness and the lightly holding, lightly held, we let it go. And we trust in some sense, oh, the next will come. We don't have to worry, oh, if we've, it's not the right word, closer is not the right word now, or intimate's not the right word. That's okay. And in fact, the periods of not knowing exactly how to do it become very important, very important. We'll keep moving in and out of a, a kind of mastery and then uh, losing the mastery. And I'll say a little more, a little further down the line. One of the things that I think we want to be a little careful about uh, in the language and in the words is that sometimes the words, um, which can be so helpful, can also get in the way and they can obscure. And I don't mean just thinking. I mean the words themselves, the concepts themselves, have their two-edged sword. Everything I'm doing right now, I'm presenting to you as a concept. And, it's, and the teaching last night and the night before and the night, those are all concepts. And they're, they're good concepts, they're, they're, they're useful concepts, but they're not the thing itself. The concept is not the thing itself. And so the concepts we're using, we want to hold lightly so they don't obscure, so they don't veil, so they don't cover the direct experience, that immediacy, that, that absolute homeness. And here we'll play a little bit. Here we can try something. We'll, we'll, we'll do it experientially. Just for a moment, shut your eyes. And without doing much, just feel your hand. You don't have to move the hand, but you might just hold it out and feel it. And feel the experience of hand. Actually, wait, wait, I'm going to do it different. <laughs> Come on, it's New Year's. I can do that. I can change. <laughs> um, first, take a look at your hand. Let's do it that way. Take a good look. You know this hand for many years. See everything you know about it. Right? Just let's see what we know. We know that there's... It's a hand, and there's fingers, and there's skin, and there's lines, and there's color, and there's texture, and there's density, and there's 
bones in the hand and tendons in the hand and blood in the hand and the hand's made up of atoms and this hand may be great for writing or for gardening or for cooking or even, you know, you've used it many different ways. Maybe you heard it sometime, maybe you never heard it, right? Right, so see the hand, see all the concepts. Now shut your eyes and just feel the hand and let go of all the ideas about hand. And notice the difference between the ideas, the concepts, and the direct experience. Hand. And then if you sense or feel or let your mindfulness saturate the hand, you might feel lightness, or you might feel warmth, or you might feel coolness, or you might experience vibration. Or you might feel like the feeling that you're feeling doesn't match the shape of the image of what a hand is. And then, and you can just play with this, there's another level. Now let go even of the concept heavy or light or shape or cool or warm. And just feel or sense that experience. And just notice what happens, what the, how it might shift the direct experience to let go of all the ideas and history of the hand, and then even the phenomenological language of hot and cold big or small, or light or heavy. Okay. So that's one, just a little pointing. We're pointing to the direct experience. And we might feel our body like that, or we might feel, we we can feel any part of our physicality. We actually have the capacity to feel emotion and have a lot of concepts, or more directly, or even feel the quality of mind, the kind of mind. The mind might be open or closed or tense or relaxed or concentrated or unconcentrated. And we can actually, we're sensitive to that. And we sometimes, the concepts will get in the way. And we want to keep moving towards the direct experience. Another way we could play a little bit. Okay, everybody, we've been working with the breath. Feel your breath for a moment. You don't have to get in formal posture. Just feel the breathing. Feel the body breathing, the breath. Notice what the breath, breathing feels like. In breath, out breath. And then let go of the idea of breath and just feel that experience. And notice if it changes at all, if you notice any difference. Anybody notice anything different? You, you could say something. This is New Year's. It's, I'm inviting. Anybody notice anything with the hand or with the breathing? More spaciousness, less density. More spaciousness, less density. More smooth. Right. Okay, got more smooth. Uh-huh. More easeful in that way. Uh-huh. Anybody else? Easier with the hand than the breath. Easier with the hand than the breath. Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah. 
So I would just want to point to the concept and the direct experience. Because even with the breath, the word is not the thing itself. The word is, the concept breath is not the breath. It's a concept. It's a good concept. It's a useful concept. Now, one of the Zen teachers, Wang Po, who I was reading this year on retreat, he said, to be absolutely without concepts is called the wisdom of dispassion. Mind is like the sun, forever empty, shining spontaneously, shining without intending to shine. This is not something which you can accomplish without effort, but when you reach the point of clinging to no thing, to nothing whatsoever, you will be acting as the Buddhas act. They, this will be acting in accordance with the saying, develop a mind which rests on no thing whatever. So he talks about to be absolutely without concepts. It's called the wisdom of dispassion. Now you notice, I hope you noticed, how did he do that? With concepts, okay? You gotta watch out for the Zen guys in that way. <laughs> when they say absolutely without concepts, they're using concepts and, and they know how to use concepts. It's a little like um, um, what Sherida was reading from the Shinshin Ming, right? The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Beautiful, poetic, more accurate to say the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. So there's one concept in particular that I think we want to keep looking at. And uh, at least in my home, my house, that concept is called Eugene. You may have a different name you know, <laughs> for your concept, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but it, it's a very important concept to pay attention to, and Gil was pointing us toward it last night, this idea of what sometimes is called selfing. And, uh, and I, I want to be careful here, because there's a lot of talk in the teachings about not-self. Sometimes you'll hear no-self. Sometimes you'll hear selflessness. Sometimes you'll hear, you know, I, me, and mine. And, the, and it's, 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 it's a central teaching. It's a central concept to start to, um, to investigate. But the problem is we hear it through our sense of self. And our sense of self includes a certain kind of judgment that we have. And so we think the sense of self is bad. We have to get rid of it. And there's a whole pattern there that I was hearing in the interviews today, which is self-judgment. Now the paradox here of the judging mind, what's called the judging mind, the comparing mind in Buddhism, the paradox here is that um, in, in simple psychological theory, what you get is they'll do a picture, big circle, the ego, sense of self, the ego. Inside, you get a smaller circle, which is the uh, instinctual energies, the id, right? The ego, the id, the instinctual energies. On top, at the apex of the big circle, you get a circle that's called the superego, or the judge the critical mind, the function, the function of the judging mind is to keep the sense of self cohesive. That is its function. So uh, in the text, I always thought it's one of the most interesting um, ways you could look at the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. He's sitting there, the armies of Mara come, attack him. They all fail, all the different versions of the hindrances and the temptations, and, um, and they all fail. And then the last, at last, Mara comes in the last moment before the, it's really the, I forget the term, it's like right before the end, pre, 
penultimate, thank you, the penultimate moment before enlightenment, Mara comes and says, what right do you have? Who do you think you are? You're a little too big for your bridges. You don't have any right to be here. You should go home, leave Spirit Rock. You know, you're never going to be a meditator. You can't do it. Look at your concentration stinks. <laughs> and Mara came. That's, that was the message. Was what right do you have? And the Buddha touches the ground. Home. Home. He affirms home here. And then he's enlightened. I, I just always thought that's so significant. The penultimate moment is about a certain kind of judgment. And then, in my mind, combining it with the psychological theory idea that the judgment keeps a sense of self cohesive. And so I was feeling sensitive to the judging mind today in the interviews and also to the kind of judgment that'll come when we start to talk about not self or selflessness or no self or the selfing. And, and even even when we try not to, somehow that goes through the self as, oh, the self is bad and I have to get rid of it. That's some way, shape, or form. And that's not what we're actually saying. And Gil said it. He said, the Buddha said, oh, basically the Buddha won't answer the question about self. He said, you know, is there a self? He won't answer. Is there not a self? You know, will not answer. Is there both self and not? He, he just won't answer. When the guy left, and Ananda said, well, why didn't you answer him? He just said it'd be too complicated. <laughs> Meaning it's, it's not so helpful to think in those kind of absolutes. But he did talk later about not-self. But before we go there, I just want to say a little more about the superego. Because I want you to pay attention to it. I think it's an important place to be diligent in practice. I, am, I personally, I, I believe it's one of the single most limiting qualities of mind for us. We're, we're harsh on ourselves, we're hard on ourselves. And the, the really sad part, the tragic part, is we believe the judgments. And they are not true. In my reading of Buddhism, your value is unassailable. Your value is unassailable. You know, we, have, we are lucky enough to have, I think, the only religion with the serial killer as a hero. Seriously. I mean, that's a radical, that's a wild religion that has that happening, right? The story of Angulimala. He'd killed 99 people. He was going to kill the Buddha. He went after him. And Angulimala had said could run and pull, take down a, a big rogue elephant. But he, and he's running after the Buddha. Buddha's do, Buddha is doing, Buddha, Buddha is doing his slow walking, feeling good. Um, <laughs> it's New Year's, you know, you got to get loose some way. Um, um, he's doing slow walking. And Angulimala can't catch him. You know, it's, it's, it's archetypal or mythical reality. And so Angulimala yells, stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha, who knows Angulimala is after him with his eye of wisdom, he says, I have stopped. You stop, Angulimala. And Angulimala gets the transmission. He's, he's a smart guy. And then there's a lot of stories about Angulimala. But what's interesting is that Angulimala not only stops, he becomes a disciple, he joins the, the uh, 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 monastic community, and he becomes enlightened, even though he killed 99 people. To me, it says something about the inherent value of each being and the possibility of each being. Now, I want to be careful here because it's New Year's and you might get wild. I don't want anybody going out and, you know, <laughs> popping anybody. <laughs> but, because uh, there's still karma. Right? Your, value, your value is not based on your action. 
but you're responsible for your actions. And Angulimala, even, even after he gets enlightened, he has karma. At least, I'm not sure, that he, he was first stage enlightenment maybe, but he still had karma happening afterwards. And when the Buddha sees it, he says, bear it, monk, bear it, because he understands that's how it works. So we're not free to do anything, but, and especially most people here haven't killed 99 people. The judgments, it's just, it's, on a certain level, it's, it's sad because they're harsh, they're mean, and they're not true. That's maybe the saddest part, they're just not true. I mean, the, the beautiful heart of the people here, and I mean really everybody, it's, it's easy for us to see. It's one of the um, blessings of, of being in the role that we happen to be in is we get to see your beauty, it, it just shines. No matter what you're experiencing, and that's odd because people come in with you know, the whole range of human suffering. So I want to encourage you to pay attention to the judging mind, be mindful of the judging mind, see what it takes to disidentify, to disengage, to see it for what it is. It's, it's a thought-feeling pattern. And it's not true. Now, here's the important part. So this sense of self, Eugene, we're coming back to that great concept, Eugene. So Eugene knows Eugene in in this band, this band of familiarity. And one of the things that happens is the band is a little narrow. And when Eugene's experience starts to go outside of that band, maybe below, and Eugene feels like a tremendous grief for somebody who's died or for the earth or for the suffering that's in the world, um, Eugene's superego starts to come in. Eugene's judge says, oh, you got, come on, what? You're, you're here at Spirit Rock. You have everything here. People are taking care of you. You know, what right do you have to feel this. Or, you know, you're falling apart. Come on, you know how to practice. Stay with the breath. That's what they said. Stay with the breathing. Or maybe, or maybe the expansion starts to come of that narrow band starts to come on the other end and it starts to feel really good or really sweet or really peaceful. Really peaceful. Oh, it gets really peaceful. And it's like nothing's happening. God, I knew that. I knew you would never get there. You thought this was. <laughs> you know, there'll be some kind of judgment, some kind of idea, some kind of way of saying, "No, don't go there." And this is keeping that band in place. It's the same as the circle and the the circle above. And and especially as the sense of self starts to relax, or we start to forget the self there'll be certain symptoms. And I, I was kind of watching them in the interviews today. And I, I, I hope this will help you pay attention to the symptoms of the self-relaxing or being forgotten or becoming a little more transparent. We start to feel like we don't know who we are. Because we don't. That's a good thing. But it's not a comfortable thing can often be disconcerting, even upsetting. And we, all of a sudden we start to feel like, oh, I have to get myself back together. It's one of the symptoms. I'm, I'm falling apart. Or wait, you know, I'm not doing it the way I know how. And there's a whole relationship to unknowing here that we want to start to, instead of tensing against or tightening against, or having judgment come down about what's happening, we actually want to begin to learn how to find our home, even in the unknown, even in not knowing ourselves or becoming unfamiliar with ourselves. Uh, John Cage, a great American composer and Zen practitioner, he said, he said, I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I'm doing. And it begins to point us at um, 
our relationship to knowing and not knowing. And we, we, we talk a lot here about, you know, knowing the breath and knowing the feelings and knowing the emotions and knowing the Vedana or the feeling tone or knowing, you know, that the mind is thinking and a lot of knowing and it's good. It's all, it's all good. But within that, within that, we want to also be able to know when we don't know. Two, two things come to mind. One is I'm remembering a teacher retreat here that we had with Hamid Ali, and we were doing inquiry together, and one of my friends who's not on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council, but a good friend, I think he did 16 three-month retreats. I mean, he'd done a lot of practice, a lot of Tibetan practice, and we were doing this this inquiry, and he kept running up to this thing, and, and then he kept going back to, now I have to figure this out, and he was talking about it, and I have to figure it out, and I, I know the inquiry well from 20 years of practice, and, and I know, and I could see what he was running up against, and he was running up against not knowing, and so he kept going, and he's got a great mind, this guy, and he kept going back to what he knew, and I said, what if you open to this? And it went, Poof. And you could just see. He's like, oh, I didn't know you could open to this. And I mean, he knows, and this guy knows a lot. And what I'm suggesting to you is that the unknown is a very rich place in our practice here, moment by moment, when we get lost or when we're confused, when we get... Uh, when we don't know who we are, or when, when we, like the word works for a while and then it doesn't work and then we're adrift a little bit, those, those might be very rich, very important times of practice. Krishna Murti put it this way. He, he wrote a whole book called Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. And it's a great book. And I was telling, so I told somebody in the interview, yeah, it's a great book. And she said, oh, I'll go read it. And I said, no, no, don't read it. I never read it. <laughs> you know, he nailed it in the title. <laughs> Why would I want to read what he has to say about it? That's just more knowing. Let's... <laughs> Freedom from the known. And that's, that's true. And that's what, and that a little bit what I was trying to point at with the hand and the breathing and our direct experience, that as much as we know, we also don't know. And that don't know is an important part of the practice, to let that live. Because that'll take us, that'll lead us further. And there's something there. And it's a funny, no, don't correct me now, but sometime later if I'm wrong on this, because somebody else told me this. When I'm quoting Nona, I know it's pretty good, our, our resonant etymologist. Um, uh, somebody told me that intimacy, guy who wrote about it a lot, he said, intimate, um, uh, let's see, has some root that means uh, of the hidden, of the hidden. And, and it points to something that we actually love about intimacy, that it has a quality of unknowing in it. And, that, and, that, and so to become intimate with all things doesn't just mean to know them, it also means not to, know, to be open to them, to, to not have any fixed position, but to let ourselves know uh, uh, again and again and again the living reality of each moment. Because that living reality, we have no idea what's next. And even if we know something in one moment, we don't need to know it in the next moment. And we don't need to pretend we don't know anything, you know, like, you know, Eugene, I know Eugene and all, but I know where Eugene's car is and home and all that stuff, you know. It's a Zen thing. They say, not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. <laughs> so I know a lot of Zen coming. So let's keep going here. Um, so be mindful of the superego, the judge, the critic, harshness, doing it wrong, 
and see what happens instead of giving, uh, as Gil was saying, uh, authority to that habit. See if you give authority to even being present with not knowing, being adrift. See where it takes you. See what happens. See what happens if you land in it and you don't even know where you're landing. So the other couple pieces, uh, I'd like to keep moving forward here, see if I can get this in. I'd like to talk a little more about selflessness and or not-self. And here's one of the ways the Buddha would help people to think about or to deconstruct the self. He would say, how do you construe this? How do you understand it, monks, nuns? If a person were to gather or burn or do as he or she likes with the grass, twigs, branches, leaves here at Chetta's Grove, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, raking, burning, doing with as he or she likes? So monks and nuns, are, they, they were pretty sharp. No. no, I wouldn't think that's me, right? Why is that? Because those things are not ourself and do not pertain to ourself. Even so, practitioners, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Be light with it. Relax with it. Forget it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And what is not yours? Form, body, is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental processes are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Let go of it. Relax with it. Be light with it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And so the Buddhas pointed out what these are the five aggregates he would start to point people at how, where we uh, grasp, where we hold, how, where we identify. And then he would say, is, this, is there a self there? Is there a self in feelings? Is there a self in body? Is there a self in mental formations? And if you look carefully, no, there's not self. And so let's do one of these little deconstructs together. We'll do a simple one. It's a very traditional one. I'm just going to switch. He, he would have used a cart. I'm going to use a car as the, as the image. If we're, car is a concept, right? It's a good concept, fun to drive concept, gets us around concept, you know, gas guzzling concept, hurts the earth concept. All, it's all kinds of implications of this concept car. But the, but the car is a concept. Let's take it apart. Let's deconstruct it. We've got a big field. Let's take out the lights, headlights, taillights, maybe some little forerunner lights or something. Take the bumpers off, put them on the ground. Let's take off the hood and the trunk. Let's take the windows out, put those down. Let's go into where the hood was and we're going to start take the engine apart, take all the parts of the engine apart, put them on the ground. Then we're going to go into the inside, take the steering wheel and all that newfangled gizmos that they have, take that apart, take the seats out, take the back seat out, take the seat belts out. Let's see, what else do we got? Then begin to take the chassis apart, the wheels off, the hubcaps, the wheels, the axles, the chassis, put it all on the ground. Where's the car? Right? Car is a concept. It's a conditioned reality made up of certain causes and conditions known as axle and windshield and seats and engine and all that stuff. And then he would say, apply that to yourself. So here we're going to try to be a little neater. I'm going to put a lot of plastic down right here. Start to take the hair on the head off, the hair on the body off. Let's take the skin off. Starts to get a little messy there. Then we're going to take the different organs out, take the brain, put it down there, and the pancreas and the liver and the intestines and putting it down there. 
And then, okay, we're draining, of course, all the blood. We got some buckets, those big auto buckets. You know, we're draining, you know, and then there's some other liquids. I won't go into detail. Other things, it all goes. And then the, you know, then the, you know, the nervous system is there very fine. And the tendons, we'll put that down. And then the bones, and they go down. Where's Eugene? Where where are you in all of this? Where are you? Or is this not self? But we've had a habit. We've had an idea that is a very conventional idea. Oh, this is self. But if we begin to deconstruct, we see that that's not actually accurate. And then we want to see, like if, I hope you are doing that, put your own pad down and put all that stuff down. Then what's here? If this is not self, what's here? And it's, a, it's an important part of the deconstructing, sometimes called, this is sometimes called affirming negation. We're negating something, but something else, we want to see what's here. What's at home after we get rid of all this? Let's try it one more way. Uh, so we were working with concept before. I'm going to give you a concept and I want you to identify with the concept. Okay? If that's okay with you. It's New Year's. Try it on. Try on this concept. And you may actually may be a familiar concept to you. So it may be easy to try it on. I am a bad meditator, okay? And then hold it for a moment and notice the impact of identifying with it or believing it. What do you notice? Anybody, when you're Believe that. Identify with it. What do you notice? Tightness, closing. Tightness, closing. Kind of caving in. Pardon? Caving in. Caving in. Embarrassment. Embarrassment. Wasting my time. Wasting my time. I added judgment. Okay. So let me, let me, let's play with this whole concept. We're going to cut off part of it. Uh, Let's cut off a bad meditator. Let's just cut that off. Let's just, let's really cut the concept down. I am. Let's just go there. Feel that. I am. See how that impacts you. That if we hold this idea and belief about ourselves, I am. And really see in the, in the actuality of the moment, how does it feel? Or how does it land? Or what's its impact? Anybody, what do you notice? Maybe neutral. Pardon? Neutral. More neutral. What else? Familiar. Familiar. Feels powerful. Powerful? Yeah, Yeah, it's powerful. I am. Okay. Solid. Solid. Feels solid. Okay, let's cut off the am for a second. Let's just go with I. I'm sure you've heard that word. It's come up in your mind once or twice in your life. I. I. Just feel I. 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 Well, where does that leave you? What's that like when you feel I? My mind starts to um, limit. Limit. So it limits the... It actually limits the mind in some way. Okay? Feels lonely. Feels lonely. Uh Burdensome. Burdensome. Nothing. Nothing. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. 
So we see what a concept like that, these different concepts do. Let, let's do one more. Just, just sit for one more second. Now let go of the eye. Okay, what happened? How did that impact you? Somebody did a more Zen version of the answer. He just went like this. Expansive. Expansive. Relief. Relief. Pardon? Peaceful. Peaceful. Untethered. Untethered, yeah, untethered. Everybody okay? (laughs) Right? Okay, let go of the eye, we're all here, right? Remember, here is where we've been going, here. And even though we let go of the eye, they're still here. That's a very interesting experiential knowing. Uh, Let's play a teeny bit more, okay? Uh, How many people here know Douglas Harding? How many people? Yeah. Not too many. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Douglas Harding was an interesting guy. I met him. I went to Zen Center once and did some practice with him. And he'd written a book called On Having No Head. And it had a big impact on me when I realized I didn't have a head. And I would like to offer this little bit the way he teaches to you because I think it'd be interesting for you to see that you don't have a head. We think we have a head. We have an idea we have a head. We have a concept of head. Uh, but remember the quote, to study the Buddha ways, to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things or be intimate with all things. What would happen if you forgot you had a head? That's, that's too abstract. I'm going to make it more experiential. <laughs> Pardon? Somebody thinks, Jerry thinks we would start bumping into things. I, I'll challenge that idea. Okay, take a look. Douglas Harding would go like this. He would say, take a look. First of all, see that everybody else here has a head but you. Like, see. You know, you can see their head. Can you see yours? (laughs) Right? And you can turn and look. Look, like take your finger, look at what's here. Like maybe there's some glass rims and maybe a little bulb here and the finger's pointing. But I mean, really, take your hand, take a look and see what's here. There's not a head here. But, and then, and then when you see that there's actually not a head, the head's an idea. It's actually an idea. In the direct experience, it's an idea. And if you put the fingers down, what's here? If there's no head. Anybody? Space. Space. Everything's here except your head. <laughs> he, he had a beautiful title. It was called On Having No Head, Zen and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. Like, we so believe, we have this idea and concept about head, and you know, it's a fine concept, it's good, and, you know, comb it and all that stuff, but, but in the direct experience, what's here is everything. Now, that's one way to say it. The last little play that I'd like to do, well, wait, I'm going to tell you one thing. It's a story that happened to me. I want to add that in. Um, 
because it's deconstructed, like we just deconstructed the head and affirmed everything else, right? Affirming negation, affirming negation, it's called in Buddhism. Um, Not self doesn't mean nothing. Letting go doesn't mean nothing. No thing doesn't mean nothing. And in some way, as Dogen said, everything appears. Really magically, but everything appears. Um, one time I was at the dentist, and I like the dentist because it's a good place to practice because there's nothing else to do. You know, they sit you up, I got stuff in your mouth, huh? Now, what are you going to do? You practice. And the dentist always used to say, he would say, oh, you're really relaxed. Or you're, you know, he, like, he got a little transmission because I was practicing. Now it turns out he started coming to Spirit Rock and I would, and I would come into the, to my dentist and he was like, all of a sudden he had this transference on me. I was a teacher, which he didn't have before. It was like, he was like, whoa, I was, I, you know, I'm almost going to bow. It was like, he got very excited about practice. So it's even nicer to come now because I get a little perk because I'm a teacher at Spirit Rock. Um, but he, he was working on me this one time and doing a little gum surgery. And this isn't for everybody, but I like to practice. And, and I'm, uh, I'm interested in the body. And I practice a lot in hospice and with people dying and dead bodies and things. It's just it's not for everybody, but it's part of my practice. So I said, can I watch, right? And he said, yeah, sure. And he gave me a mirror. And they, you know, they anesthetized the little part they were doing. But I saw him cut the gum, and I saw him pull back the, the gum. And, uh, and when he did, and then you could see the, the tooth as a real bone, you know? It's just a bone in there. And he pulled it back, and this thought went through my head. And the thought was, oh, this is not me. You know, it was like really clear. Oh, that's not me. <laughs> and, and in a moment, it was like awareness filled the room. Really. It was like, not only, it didn't just fill the room. I mean, it was like everything was, it was like some way that awareness usually gets um, uh, shaped related to how we think about ourselves and our body and where it's, we're located. That went away when I thought, oh my God, this is not me. And the awareness just expanded. I mean, I didn't do this at all. It just expanded. It filled the room. It was like, oh, they were just in my awareness. The nurse and the guy, and he was doing his thing. He didn't know what was happening. I'm having like this wow experience. Like awareness fills the room at the dentist office. Cool. <laughs> and, and, and it was the same. It was a certain kind the sense of self was negated just spontaneously one you know and then something was affirmed something was affirmed this awareness and this awareness we can begin to see we can begin to point at directly and gil was talking about it a little last night also as part of when things fall away or get quiet and this awareness that's here and the awareness is here, like it's totally here, totally. You don't have to go anywhere. I mean, you would not know a thing I said if awareness wasn't happening. I wouldn't know a thing I said if awareness wasn't happening. What's tricky is we tend to not, and John was pointing at this earlier in the week, we tend to not pay attention to awareness itself. Like he, as John said, it's like the space in the room. We, we focus on the objects. We don't see the space that's here that's totally we're, we're immersed in. You know, it's like the fish doesn't see the water. But in some of the practices, especially in the Tibetan tradition, we're really encouraged to uh, pay attention to it. And one way you can do it right now is just turn your attention to what's knowing, to what's looking. Where does the seeing come from? In some way, again, the language will be a little crude, but what's behind your eyes? 
What's behind your ears? What's behind your sensations? What, how do we know what we know if not by awareness and then beginning to turn and look at it directly? And everything's being known. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about it this way. They say, uh, the whole of samsara and nirvana is one's own mind. And this is why the judgment is so sad. Because even the thinking, where does it come from? How do we know it? Awareness, the mind. The mind is amazing. Although the one mind is, it has not existence. And here they're pointing to the nature of awareness. Although the one mind is, it has not existence. When one seeks one's mind in its true state, it is found to be quite intelligent, cognizant, although invisible. In its true state, the mind is naked, immaculate, not made of anything, being of the voidness, empty, clear, without duality, transparent, timeless, uncompounded, all these beautiful pointing, these are words pointing at something that's already here, that is the great background for everything we're doing, and even the foreground sometimes, in which everything is being known, this awareness. In its true state, the mind is naked, immaculate, not made of anything, being of the voidness, clear, empty, without duality, transparent, timeless, uncompounded. The word John used was unfabricated, unimpeded, colorless, not realizable as a separate thing, but as the unity of all things, yet not composed of them. In other words, it knows everything, but it's not bound by anything. This awareness, this cognizing capacity, knowing. The one mind, oh, he says, it goes on, it says, not realizable as a separate thing, but as the unity of all things, yet not composed of them, of one taste, of one taste. The mind, the one mind being of the voidness and without foundation, one's mind is likewise as spacious as the sky. And this is the truth. Our mind is vast. It's vast. Everything's been known. Everything's being known. Arising of themselves or being naturally free like the clouds in the sky, all appearances Feelings, thoughts, breath, reactions, good, bad meditation, all appearances fade away. To know whether this is true, look within your own mind. And when, when Wang Po was talking about that awareness, that sun that shines without attempting to shine, this is what he was talking about. The sun that shines without attempting to shine. And let's do one more. We'll do one more little play here. And you can relax, but here. Here's, here's my little way of looking at this. Stop being aware right now. I want you to stop being aware. No, I mean, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Can anybody stop being aware? Can we, pay it, can we pay attention to that which cannot stop being aware? Can we, and even that is a little, little crude. Can we pay attention? How about can we, is there a sense of that which is here, 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 right here, and yet it, and it cannot stop being aware? So this kind of looking is very tricky because even to say look means 
like we expect to see something, right? Right. The language is 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 not the best, but it's what we have to work with. So to say, look, always implies, oh, we're going to see something, but it's not. It's more like feeling, sensing, knowing, or or hearing. And I mean, H E R E. It's almost like we hear, we become here itself, and we see that here includes everything. And that knowing, that awareness, that mind that the Buddha actually talked about is luminous, this luminous mind. And the Tibetans talk about is the nature of mind is here. And we don't, not only is it our birthright, not only do we not have to fight for it, it's always been here, as far as I can tell. And I want you to look for yourself. I don't want to give any absolutes, but just look and see. Look and see. How is everything being known? Let's sit for a minute. I'm going to end with a poem by Emily Dickinson, which I took one liberty with. I changed the word brain to mind. But she, she was on to this. And you don't have to think about any of what we did tonight much at all. Please don't. It, it, it just, it will seed what's needed. More to just stay here, stay here, stay here. The mind, the mind is wider than the sky. For put them side by side. The one the other will include with ease and you beside. The mind is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue. The one the other will absorb as sponges, buckets do. The mind is just the weight of God. The mind is just the weight of God, for lift them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do a syllable from sound. The mind is wider than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will include with ease and you beside. The mind is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges, buckets do. The mind, the mind, this mind here, is just the weight of God, for lift them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do a syllable from sound. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.